Welcome to the Lovable Podcast. I'm Kelly Flanagan, clinical psychologist and author of Lovable, embracing what is truest about you so you can truly embrace your life. In this podcast, I'm walking with you each week for one year through Lovable's companion book, the year of listening, loving, and living. This companion book is currently available nowhere else, so I hope you'll join us on this journey as together we recognize, reveal, and resurrect your truest, worthiest, most lovable self. Can't shake these lies, they keep running around in my head. But what if I saw me the way that you see me? What if I believed it was true? What if I traded this shame and self hatred for a chance at believing? Welcome to episode 50 of the Lovable Podcast. This week, we are going to talk about what new fears will arise when you start to practice your passions and what to do about those fears. Specifically, we will be focused on the fact that usually our feelings are our friends. They provide important data to us about who we are and what's going on in our world, but sometimes they turn against us. Sometimes they start lying to us. Sometimes our fear tells us to stop doing the things we most love to do. This week, we're going to stop listening to it. Before we get into this week's conversation, though, a couple of quick notes. Remember, the comprehensive, lovable study experience is available now. Everything that we've been going through in this podcast, all of this written content that goes along with the year of listening, loving, and living, as well as an individual and group study guide for lovable, it's all available for free on my website. You can go there right now to get it at drkellyflanagan.com backslash experience. Again, that's drkellyflanagan.com with a dr backslash experience. When you get there, you'll also find all the instructions for ordering copies of Lovable for yourself, your small group, or your organization. By the way, while you're at my website, you can sign up for my mailing list at the top of the right sidebar. You'll immediately get a free ebook entitled The Marriage Manifesto, Turning Your World Upside Down, and you'll get a free sample of Lovable, and then every week, you'll get one email on Wednesday mornings with links to helpful content. All right, let's get into this week's conversation. Instead of spending our lives listening to our fears, let's listen to a different voice instead. Thanks for tuning in. Hello, Facebook Live. Welcome to week 49 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, What to Do When Our Feelings Are Lying to Us. Fear is an important emotion. We need it. It causes us to buckle our seatbelts, run out of burning buildings, uh, grab our pepper spray when we hear footsteps behind us in a dark parking lot, but in the modern world, our fear has gone rogue. We now get afraid not just about life-threatening situations, but also about life-changing situations. We are afraid not just of threats, but of opportunities. In this way, our fear lies to us, telling us that what will make us come most fully alive is actually going to kill us. And when it lies to us like this, it is essential that we stop listening to it. Today, we are going to stop listening to it. Before we get into this week's discussion, though, let's check in. As always, I would love to hear what successes are you having in practicing your passions, or where do you feel stuck, what insights do you have to share with us at this point, or what questions do you have to ask, and even more specifically, last week we talked about how the practicing of our passions can sometimes feel still a little meaningless, but when you begin to practice those passions in the service of redeeming some painful part of your story, a feeling of purpose is almost inevitable. If you're willing to share, I wonder how, how are you practicing your passions to redeem your pain, or, or what clarity are you gaining about how you might be able to do so? And while you are thinking about what you want to share, I will share with you an example of um, 
how I use my passion, I guess, to redeem some of my pain. Um, you know, I was thinking about, I actually went through this exercise again. Um, you know, one of my passions is writing. Um, and as I think I shared last week, you know, if I just wrote about anything, um, it wouldn't feel nearly as purposeful as if I write about what has been painful in my story in the service of sort of redeeming that pain for me and then hopefully contributing to the sort of, you know, ongoing redemption of that particular type of pain in the world. And so um, as a guy who felt a lot of shame in his life, who's carried a lot of shame, um, writing my first book about shame and overcoming shame um, in order to embrace who we truly are, um, to develop a sense of worthiness, to take that sense of worthiness into relationships so we can find people we belong to, and then to practice that sense of worthiness in our passions. Um, that was a way for me of redeeming some of my pain, and it made writing lovable feel really meaningful, regardless of how lovable it did out in the world. Um, just to be able to practice that passion in the service of redeeming that pain was really important. And here, just the last couple of weeks, I um, have finished up a proposal for my second book, and, uh, and that second book is um, about companionship and um, sort of written through the lens of marriage, but for people in, in companionships of every kind. And, um, and, and, and part of that has to do with the fact that I, you know, I grew up in a house where uh, my parents were in conflict an awful lot. I never got violent, but they were in conflict a lot and I felt it intensely. And um, by the time I was in college, I had become a marital researcher, not really realizing that I was trying to redeem my pain through my studies and my research, but that that's what I was instinctively doing. And, um, and so now, again, if I, if I have a choice about what to write a second book about, um, it's going to have to be in some way connected to some of the pain I've carried in my life um, related to conflict in relationships and difficulties in companionship and, uh, and in the service of redeeming that pain, um, practice my passion for writing. So um, that's one way I, I try to think of it. It just, the, the idea of what painful parts of my story still need redeeming helps to direct direct my passion. Um, and when I let that pain direct that passion, my life feels much more purposeful. And in my experience working with people and clients in general, that's sort of, that's the formula. That's the way that it works. Um, and so curious to hear um, from you too about, like I said, anything related to these, this idea of practicing our passions, things that are going well, things that aren't, but also anything specific with regard to the ways that you're redeeming your pain with your passions or becoming aware of ways that you want to do so. Michelle writes, my passion is writing, as you probably know. And yeah, Michelle, I do know. Um, you write beautifully. Um, I recently volunteered to start writing a blog for our church. It won't be anything heavy, but it's a start. That is awesome. Michelle, you probably remember from Lovable, we talk about how in practicing our passions, it's it's usually not a big leap. You know, there's the whole like, leap for you know leap into your passions take a leap be brave and then actually starting to practice our passions feels much more like sort of wading into the ocean or wading into the shed you know like a, a zero depth pool for kids it's just one step at a time getting a little bit deeper as you go um, and that's how the practicing of our passions prepares us for the next step um, i am so excited for you that you are starting to wade in um, I think of it like this, and I, I, you know, I tell people this all the time. Like, you know, I'll be seeing a high school kid for therapy, and he'll say, um, "Oh my gosh, the idea of graduate school is just so overwhelming." And I'll say, "It should be. You know, high school prepares you for college. College prepares you for graduate school. 
Um, each step that you're in is preparing you for the next step. It's why we don't leap too many steps beyond where we're at um, and why it often becomes uh, very complicated if that if we do sort of get propelled a number of steps beyond what we've practiced um, too quickly. So um, I love it. I love it, Michelle, and I love the idea that you're waiting in and that this step will begin to reveal what the next step is for you, and that's the beauty of it. In that same section in Lovable, I talk about how um, I really, when I started writing publicly, I had no plan beyond my <laughs> my first blog post, and then I enjoyed writing it so much, and I had an, another idea. And I was like, oh, maybe I could, I published it on a Friday night and I thought, oh, maybe I could publish another one next Friday, you know, and then I had so much fun writing that one. And then I had another idea, <laughs> uh, maybe I could publish another one next Friday and, um, and step by step, that's how you get there, you know, um, and you don't know necessarily where you're going. You just know that an, uh, the next step has been revealed to you and that you're going to take it regardless of how scared you get, <laughs> which is what we're going to talk about today. Heather writes, pain and passion equals purpose. This year has been a lot of pain. Passion is my creativity, painting, photography. While I'm not doing as much as I like of either, still need to earn a living, exactly. But I have been practicing and I've got better at both, happier with the end product. Loving and sharing the results with family and friends is the purpose. Absolutely, Heather, that is, that's beautiful. I mean, you, you capture so much in that one it, by by being faithful to your own experience and sharing it with us, you capture so much of what it is like to begin really being faithful to our passions. Number one, you enjoy doing it, so you want to do more of it. Number two, you have to deal with the realities of uh, of life, of commitments you've made, of financial obligations you have, um, and so you have to be particularly faithful to filling the margins of your life with your passion, um, looking for ways to expand those margins a little bit so you have more time. Um, giving yourself actually more financial margins so that the passion doesn't have to make you money right away, that that doesn't need to be the purpose, um, because then you start to feel compelled to go more quickly than step-by-step, step, and, and that can be a problem. Um, and that just being able to, to share beauty with the world, to add beauty to the world, can be a purposeful feeling experience in and of itself. That takes away so much of the pressure so much of the shame that we feel that we've got to make a difference that it has to matter that it's got to be have some demonstrable sort of impact upon the world um like adding a little bit of beauty to the world that is enough um thank you heather for that for doing what you're doing and and for saying it so that we can sort of articulate all that for ourselves marie writes i didn't realize that in the last year i stopped engaging my passion of singing directly as a result of a painful year i'm starting to sing again mostly in private as a conversation to god and in faith that i am worthy to have a voice but just recently i found myself also getting involved in the worship ministry this time around it's different my only goal is to sing for jesus that it's encouraging others into their own worship different because there's no illusion that i'm doing it for anyone other than the audience of one Wow, Marie, what a freedom in that. What a freedom in, in saying that this is not agenda-driven, this is not outcome-driven, there's, um, there's not a criteria by which I can measure the success of my singing, but um, I'm just singing to, to exercise the gift and the passion that I've been given, um, and I have an audience of one. Uh, and, you know, Marie, I, I, I appreciate what you said, that your pain stopped you from singing. And uh, on the other side of that now, I wonder what it will look like to actually let that pain inform your singing, right? Because I do think that does happen. We get pain, we, 
We're in pain, we get hurt, and we stop practicing our passion. Then when we resume our passion, though, we may have new clarity about how we want to practice it and in what ways. Um, and um, and so, yeah, I'm, it's a powerful idea that your pain may now inform your singing in a way that makes it that much more powerful. So thank you for sharing that. Thank you for doing it. Joy writes, I have redeemed my pain of being highly sensitive and not getting my needs of caring, touch, and emotional connection by being an energy healer with a depth of being in full presence with my clients and touching my clients with safety and compassion and nurturance. I point them back to their own body's wisdom. I am now working on a book, even though writing is not natural or easy for me, but because I want to offer more tools to my clients, other therapists and healers, I will overcome my obstacles and find a way to finish this book. Because I am more skilled at art and design than writing, I am overcoming my obstacle by laying out my book in a design program and then filling in the missing holes in my chapters. What a brilliant, what a brilliant idea, Joy. Um, that one gives me a little, a little bit of the tingles um, because of how much you are honoring what your passions and gifts are, right? And, and you're saying, number one, um, I, I, I have found a way directly to, to redeem my own pain, um, uh, both in the practice of what I'm doing and in the practice of helping other people, um, which is always the, it's always the best story, right? Uh, the, the hero in a story, if, if they redeem their pain just to sort of get their own story back together, um, that's great. We, I think we can be inspired by that. But when that pain is redeemed in the service of helping others um, with that pain, we get really inspired. So your story is inspiring to me. But then also this like sense of like, I, I, I trust my gifts and my passions enough to figure out how to do this next step of writing a book through my passions, which are more visual than, than um, linguistic. Um, what a beautiful example of faithfulness to your passions and sort of an encouragement, I think, to all of us to be flexible in the ways that we're pursuing our passions. Thank you, Joy. I mean, I don't know about you all, but it just, it gives me so much hope. Like, <laughs> wouldn't it be great if, the above the fold headline on, on every news organization had to be an example of one way that one person is is faithfully bravely practicing their passions and then all everything else could be below the fold <laughs> i think we'd get actually a more accurate depiction of the world um and a more inspiring depiction depiction of the world and that's what i as i had this conversation with you all i realized is that reality is inspiring how crazy is that reality is inspiring what you all are doing out there is beautiful and it's inspiring. And, uh, and I'm just so grateful for each of you doing it and keep doing it. Well, let's, um, because I think we're, we're sort of right in the middle. I mean, you guys are talking about ways that you're actively challenging yourselves and practicing your passions. Let's get right into this week's um, content, which is about what's probably going to happen or has been happening as you've been challenging yourself to practice your passions in new ways. So let's get into that. Um, there's actually not any particular context from Lovable this week to share with you. This is sort of a, a parallel idea, but no major connection to Lovable. So I think it's a useful addition to the Lovable text itself. Um, so we'll get right into it. Um, it's week 49 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled, What to Do When Our Feelings Are Lying to Us. My youngest son is a lot like me. He pretty much organizes his life around avoiding physical pain and discomfort. So when he got pink eye and the doctor ordered us to put antibiotic drops in his eye, I wondered if we could just lock him in his room for a week until the pink eye resolved on its own. Don't judge me. I only wondered for a minute or two. By the way, I didn't actually wonder that. 
that's creative license, but uh, maybe I did a little bit. Anyways, I was put in charge of the drops because I can empathize a little better with his hysteria. As he lay on the couch, writhing, hands clamped shut, or eyes clamped shut rather, and screaming, it was clear his feelings were preventing him from receiving a healing bomb. The drops were medicine. They would be soothing and they would cure him, but his feelings were lying to him, telling him he wouldn't be able to handle the discomfort. And there was nothing I could do to change his feelings. Our feelings are important. We need to listen to them, to become intimately familiar with them, to learn their depths. But that doesn't mean they're always honest with us. Sometimes our feelings lie. For instance, anxiety is a sincere and good feeling when you hear footsteps behind you in a dark parking garage, as I mentioned earlier. But it's a horrible, life-ruining lie when you are walking down the street and scared to death of what everyone thinks of the size of your waist or the size of your wallet. Many of us have gotten used to listening to the lies our feelings whisper to us, and it's shutting down our lives, because we are missing out on the healing elixir of love and grace and creativity and wonder. My feelings lie to me every time a new blog post goes live. I get terrified of what people will think. My feelings tell me it's not worth it. They tell me to forget about this whole writing thing. So as my son rocked to and fro on the couch, I could relate to it. Quietly, I asked him to listen to my whisper, and when he had stilled, I asked, can you find the place inside of your heart where you can do anything? One eye peeked open. Huh? He asked. So I said it again. Can you close your eyes and find the still, quiet place inside of you where you know you can do anything? He closed his eyes. I watched his face get placid and his chest begin to slowly rise and fall. Then his eyes opened and he looked at me and he said, I'm ready, Daddy. And I dropped the healing medicine into his eye. We have a still, quiet place inside of us. I could confidently encourage my son to find his still quiet center because as a therapist, I've learned we all have it. And when we call upon it, our fears lose their power to limit us, our anger loses its power to devastate us, and our sadness loses its power to devour us. Our feelings lose their control over us. We trade in our resentment for the quiet whisper of, go apologize. We trade in our fear of condemnation for the quiet whisper of, go create. We trade in our regrets about the past for the quiet whisper of, live this now. We trade in our surge of shame for be vulnerable, make yourself known. We trade in years of you're a mess, you should be embarrassed for the quiet whisper of you're a mess, join the club and start to live. My feelings tell me to scrap a piece of writing like this. My feelings tell me people will think I'm arrogant to speak so boldly. My feelings tell me people will think it's all a bunch of psychobabble. Or even worse, people won't care about it at all. But the quiet whisper from the still place says, put it out there. Your words matter, Kelly, and even if you get it all wrong, you're still worthy. The whisper is like a drop of healing medicine. Our feelings keep us captive, killing our creativity, stifling our love, undermining our redemption and the resurrection of our truest self. But what if we all stopped listening to them and started listening to the still, quiet place inside? I think it would be like a bomb, and I think we'd all start to see our lives for what they are. Life is a gift in terrifying disguise, and we are here to open it until we find the still quiet place in the center of it, where fear no longer decides. Until we find the still quiet place in the center of it, where fear no longer decides. And I think that's an important conclusion to that piece because um, it's not to say necessarily that our fear goes away. Um, it's to say that it's not, it's not driving the car. <laughs> it's not behind the steering wheel. Um, it's in the passenger seat at best, maybe in the back seat, um, but that we are deciding which direction we go with our life, even when our fear is, is, um, is, is lying to us and telling us we can't go that way, 
we can't handle it, the discomfort's too much, um, until we find the still quiet place in the center of us where fear no longer decides. So that's this week's reading. Um, it's actually sort of serendipitous here to be reading it in a week when um, my agent sent out my next manuscript to publishers um, because my fear is telling me there is no way I should do that. <laughs> like it reminds me of like all the rejections before the acceptance. This is the last time it reminds me of, um, I remember a particular moment of despair when it felt like this isn't gonna happen. Um, all of this work and it's not gonna happen. It just tells me to avoid all that pain. It tells me it's not worth it. Um, and actually today I was coming into to this podcast episode today and feeling particularly anxious. And I realized what I was actually feeling was vulnerable. I was like, why am I feeling so vulnerable coming into this recording today? Um, why am I feeling like, oh no, you're gonna make a mistake and it's going to be catastrophic. And um, I realized it was because just the vulnerability of sending that manuscript proposal out just has me feeling intensely vulnerable right now. Um, and that my fear is telling me, uh, close up that vulnerability. You can eliminate that by not doing any of this. <laughs> and I need to not listen to it because on the other side of doing all of this, um, I feel more alive. So um, that's what we want to focus on today. I'm curious to hear from you. Um, if you have any of your own examples in which you ignored your fear, lived bravely, um, or on the other hand, maybe ways your fear sort of has kept you from doing some things currently um, in ways that you want to stop listening to it. Um, I'm, I'm curious to hear about that. I'm also curious, I, I don't know if this is, makes sense, but if you have any thoughts about how to discern like when your fear is telling you the truth, like that's dangerous and you need to not do it. That, that, that flame on the stovetop, you, it, it will hurt you. You need to not touch it. And when it's lying to you, when it's telling you that you shouldn't do something that actually in the long run will make you come more alive. In other words, when is it serving its legitimate self-preservational function and when has it gone rogue? So um, I, I guess I open the discussion up for, for any thoughts in, in that regard or in, about any of those ideas. Carrie Lynn writes, my passion, beauty from the ashes always. Go ahead, put yourself out there. If you quote, crash and burn, beauty from the ashes. Um, Carrie Lynn, I was listening to an interview on the Typology podcast with Ian Cron. He was interviewing Don Miller, and uh, um, Don Miller was talking about how he's living according to the principles of story. And in the principles of story, if there's a negative turn in a story, if there's pain and setback, um, the, the the best stories always involve redeeming that pain and setback, right? And so he's become he's become begun to live that idea so habitually that when something bad happens to him, he goes, "Ooh, what." What, what's the good thing that's going to come out of this? Um, and that that's sort of like, it's, it's not intuitive to his nature. That's not, he's not like just an, a, you know, naturally an optimist, but this idea of how do I, how do I trust that something beautiful will come out of this difficult experience? How do I trust that even though I'm scared right now, if I do this, something good will come from this. I don't know what it is. I can't predict what it is, but I'm going to try this and trust it anyways. And I'm not going to let this voice of fear stop me. Alex writes, I have found that when I have those uncomfortable feelings, fear, pain, anger, regret, etc., by acknowledging them and giving myself permission to feel them and taking them head on with love, they pass rather quickly and I am able to move on in a purposeful way. Passion, purpose, and thriving are the only way forward to find a meaningful life we all desire. Your words do matter, Dr. Kelly, and we are all grateful you overcame to share them with us. Thank you, Alex, for that that kindness there at the end and for the wisdom of what you're saying. That this isn't about resisting fear. This isn't about saying you shouldn't feel it. 
it's actually about saying, welcome it in, right? Um, you have to give it, you have to hold, let it hold court. You have to give it an audience so that you can begin to discern, do I listen to this fear or do I not? Um, and as you, as you quit resisting it, as we were talking earlier, you eliminate the suffering that goes along with resisting that fear. And sometimes you discover that the fear automatically starts to die down once you re quit resisting it. Um, but at the very least, you gain some ability to have some wisdom to discern, should I keep listening to it? Okay, giving it an audience, let it in, um, paid attention to it. Do I, let it, do I let it steer the car here or do I steer it? Um, and, and that is such an important piece of this that we not resist it. Thank you for that, Alex. Jackie writes, Kelly, I was just recently trained in EMDR and I'm so excited to have another powerful tool for healing. But that voice of fear is telling me it's not going to work and all of my efforts are for nothing. That this will be another disappointment for myself and my clients. Well, Jackie, that is, um, I, you are actually joining a conversation I was just having yesterday and we were having in our therapy office yesterday. Um, and it's the pressure that healers feel to heal um, and that we have a toolbox um, and we feel pressure that those tools be effective in helping people. Um, but there's to every helping relationship, there's an underlying current of shame going on. And it is the helper's sense of shame that says, if I don't pull this off, if I don't help, then I, um, I'm not good enough, I failed, what's wrong with me? And it is the help ease sense of shame of wanting to be healed and what's wrong with me that I'm not getting better and so on. And so it's important that we attend to that level of the relationship always um, and begin to take some of the pressure off of the healing process um, to say that it's we do our best, but it's hard and it's unpredictable and there's no guarantees and some people take longer to heal and some people need multiple tools and that it's messy, but we're in it together, right? That I may not be able to cure you right away, but I can be here to care for you through anything. Um, and sometimes that care is as powerful as the cure that the tool would provide. So um, I appreciate your, um, I, I love what you're doing to gather tools. And um, my encouragement to you and I think to every helper is to um, uh, be cautious that the tools that we bring to the healing relationship don't somehow sort of reinforce this underlying dynamic of shame that says everybody's worth here is dependent upon this working, right? And, and, and in doing so sort of complicate the problem that uh, if we all give ourselves freedom for change to be messy and slow, then ironically we are actually beginning to relieve that undercurrent of shame and things get better more quickly. Nick writes, hi doctor and thanks for your webcast. First time poster here. Nick, welcome. We're so glad to have you, man. Um, so many thoughts about many different things regarding passion and my circumstance. So I suppose what comes to mind first, conflict conflicts me. <laughs> Finding passion within today's environment, a passion that may not be art, writing, or whatever, but living with passion involves negotiating today's terrain, which seems filling with biases on steroids to create fervor, to gain favor, but it never seems the whole truth and creates false demons. Knowing where truth is or where the pendulum stops swinging not far one way in either direction seems to be tough. This is all about loving, serving, living, joining, and participating, and these conflicts conflict me. I hope this wasn't so lengthy, and of course, all my doubts want to tell me to not send this to you. Thanks. Nick, I appreciate you sharing so openly and, and vulnerably. And I know that whenever somebody does that here on the podcast, it's uh, it's feeling comforting to somebody else out there, right? Um, so no, I, I um, want you to know that 
we're grateful for your thoughts. Um, there, we said something earlier in this podcast that reality is inspiring. Um, and I, I think, and, and tell me if I'm wrong, but when, when we receive the constant flow of media telling us that the world is dangerous um, or that people who think the world is dangerous are dangerous, um, or when we go on Facebook and everybody's fighting and angry, or we go on Twitter and everyone's got a, a quippy way to make somebody feel bad, um, or we go on Instagram and all of our kids are bullying each other, um, whatever, whatever it is, that the world feels really dangerous. Um, it feels increasingly vulnerable to, to practice our passions in the world because it seems like everyone's got something to say about everybody. But if you actually pay attention to the real world, if you actually walk through your life and see, for the most part, the way that people are treating each other on the street, um, that actually the world is far safer, um, not safe, but safer than we're, we're taught to believe it is, um, and that the world is actually hoping that you will practice your passions. Um, and that, as we've talked about in this podcast, Nick, it's one way to clarify who our people are, that when we practice our passions, and maybe this group of people have a hard time with it, but this group says, ooh, love what you're doing. Now we've got greater clarity about who our people are as well. Um, so my encouragement to you and to everybody listening is that reality is far safer for your passions than you think. Not entirely safe, which is why the fear comes up. Some of it's accurate. So there will be criticism. We're going to be talking about that next week, um, what to do when there actually is the fear isn't just imagined, but it's real when failure happens and criticism happens. So um, that is there, but it is not nearly as prevalent as we think. Um, and so we can we can go forward based upon the trust that there will be people to receive our passion and we'll celebrate when we find those people. Nick writes, couldn't agree more, which even makes the news more exasperating. More can be said, but I will leave it there. <laughs> um, well, and you know, Nick, um, I think the reality is that... that um, um, and, I, and I'm, I don't come from the camp. I think that journalists do a great job. I think that we need their work. Um, but I do think that the work that they then do is then packaged in a way to sell to people. Um, and it's a business. And the way that you sell things these days is getting people's attention. And the way to get people's attention, I saw this in a TED Talk at some point recently, is you appeal to the lowest level of the brainstem, anger or fear. That's how you get people's attention. Um, and so I think journalists do great work. Um, and then that work is packaged in the form of fear in, in ways that produce fear and anger so that people pay attention to that journal, those journalists' work. Um, and, and so the reality is to the extent to which we expose ourselves to media, um, we will be setting ourselves up to, to be indoctrinated into the idea that the world is mostly scary and angry. And, and the reality is it's actually much more inspiring and beautiful than that. Um, one of the ways that I've approached this recently is to get my news through comedy, um, like through late night shows um, and other, and other <laughs> sorts of things. It helps me like stay up to date on current events, but to, um, to sort of be given that news in the form of something a little more joyful and happy. So that's been my way of addressing that. So hope maybe that maybe that'll help Nick. Um, Shelley writes, I completely was in that place of fear and anxiety yesterday. My anxiety was driving the car leading to my surgery. I do not like being feeling vulnerable to others. And the thought of being in the care of others completely triggered every nerve in my body. I wondered would they take care of me? I wondered would they have patience with me and all of my questions? I wondered if they would be kind. 
I also have trouble trying to discern if my fears and concerns have gone rogue. I ask myself a lot of what-if questions, mostly swinging to all things that could go wrong. I have to try to distract and be intentional about knowing that God is in control and learn to just be still in my quiet place. I learn that I have a lot of work to do. You know, Shelley, I think going into, I mean, surgery is about as vulnerable of a situation as a human can go into, right? A lot of times you're literally unconscious. You're turning your your life and your your physical well-being over into the hands of people you barely know. Um, I think in that situation to feel vulnerable and to feel a little afraid is totally okay. Um, but again, if like you said, if you put fear in the driver's seat there, um, oh, this feels scary, I don't want to do it, so I'm not going to do it, prevents us from getting the healing that we need, prevents us from exactly the thing that is best for us. Um, so to not, not shame ourselves when our fear comes up, to not think that it's even wrong that we're, we're feeling fearful, that it's to say, hey, it's sort of normal to feel fearful in this situation. I just don't have to listen to it. I don't have to let it make the decisions for me. Um, that can be sort of a powerful place to land in that. So Shelly, good for you. Um, we're so glad that everything went well yesterday and you're here with us today. Okay, let's keep this uh, conversation going by focusing on this week's practice, uh, which is all about finding the still, quiet place in the center of us where fear no longer decides, okay? And for some of us, this is a place we're familiar with. For some of us, this is a place that we have have frequented only occasionally, and for some of us, it's hard to believe it's there. Um, but it is for each of us, and we want to talk about just beginning to cultivate more and more of a, um, a, a an orientation toward it in our lives. So here we go. The week 49 practice. As you begin to regularly live the things you are passionate about, you will experience fear. It goes along with the vulnerability. It goes along with doing new things and taking risks. And it is important to listen to it for a moment. However, if as you listen, you realize your fear is telling you not to do the thing you've decided you want to do after this long and careful process of recognizing who you are, revealing yourself, and now resurrecting your passions, then your fear is not helpful. It's not protective. It's harmful. If this is the case, it is important to return again to a different kind of listening. It's time, once again, to listen for the voice of grace. During the months of listening, we listened for the voice of shame before we could listen for the voice of grace. Here, we will listen to our fear before we listen to the voice of grace. The voice of fear within you is the voice of your self-protection. It evaluates all of the hard work you've done during these months of living, all the wisdom you've accumulated about who you are and how you want to live most fully alive, and it makes predictions about how it will all turn out. It looks into the future and describes the catastrophes it sees there. So first, bring to mind the steps you've already taken toward practicing your passions and visualize the steps you will take in the near future. In the near future. Now listen to your fear, critique, and describe the worst possible outcomes. What might happen when the eyedrop of your passion lands inside the eyelid of your life? List all of the potentially painful consequences of pursuing your passion. Be thorough. Keep writing them down until the fear begins to quiet down. Now, I know that sounds counterintuitive, but it goes back to exactly what Alex um, taught us earlier, which is that it is really important to give your fear an audience, um, to let it have its voice, right? Be really thorough in listening to it. And then as, as you start to run out of fears, as you begin to run out of um, the intensity of that voice, now listen for the voice of grace. It will sound something like this. Quote, you don't practice your passion so it will turn out perfectly or successfully. You practice your passion because if you don't do it, you can't come fully back to life. It may indeed be uncomfortable, even painful, but you can handle it. 
You can endure it for the sake of feeling fully alive, unquote. This is what you want to listen for, the voice that says you can handle it, whatever the outcome. It emanates from a solid, steady, eternal place inside of you. Your true self knows you can handle far more than your fear says you can. The fragment of God within you is small, but a plenty big enough foundation upon which to build a passionate, meaningful life. Find the still, quiet place inside of you where fear no longer decides. So to me, this practice of listening for the voice of grace and, and listening for the voice that is not, it's not the voice of your self-encouragement. The voice of your self-encouragement will say things like, um, oh, it'll be fine. Oh, it'll go great. Oh, your fear is just being silly. This is all going to be fantastic. Um, think about all the good things that could happen. It doesn't do that. It says, yeah, it, it actually could go badly. This could break bad on you and you can handle it. You've got this still quiet place inside of you that can handle the discomfort of what lies ahead if it doesn't go perfectly. Um, and that is the voice that we want to be listening for. And as we continue to listen to it, we will be increasingly residing in that still quiet place inside of us um, that can handle even the most difficult things. So, um, so that's my encouragement to you um, this week is to begin practicing that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts and reactions as we, as we wrap up this conversation. Marie writes, recently a wise voice encouraged me to take my eyes of the fear and to release faith over myself. For me, this means centering on the truth of my true self, even holding onto it tenaciously. Just by that act, the fear is taken out of the driver's seat, and I can, once again, breathe and think without overthinking. Yeah, good point. And be wise and discerning about what is legitimate fear and helpful precautions versus what is unwarranted alarm. That's really good. Um, centering on the true self, even holding onto it tenaciously. Um, and in doing that, and kind of coming to this still quiet center of you. Um, it allows you to make patient, careful, wise decisions about which parts of your fear uh, to listen to and which parts of your fear to sort of reject. And that's another great example, Marie. I mean, you're essentially asking us to leave the dualism too of fear is bad um, and um, act bravely and don't listen to your fear. And instead to say it's more complicated than that. Your fear will be telling you some truth and it's okay to listen to that truth and act upon it but to be wise and patient and, and discerning and deciding um, which parts of it you listen to. So good. Thank you, Marie. Heather writes, I've been doing a lot of quietly listening to what the universe has been telling me and making those changes. Fear sometimes wins, but more often than not, the universe wins. I love that. Um, there's so much grace for yourself in that, Heather, to be able to say that out loud and uh, grace that we all need to, to be given in the midst of an assignment like this because it's hard to overcome our fears, to let them go, act anyways. And to say, hey, sometimes sometimes you'll put fear in charge. Sometimes it will happen. And when that happens, it's okay. Um, begin to begin that journey, right? Back to the, the your true self, to that still quiet center. In fact, in this story about Quinn, I mean, we had to give him drops for, what, a week, seven days or something with the pink eye? And did he every time get to that still quiet center? No. But did it get easier and easier to do over time? Yes. Sometimes the fear went out. But, but he was developing a habit of returning and trusting that he could handle it. So yeah, thanks for the grace, Heather, and reminding us that we don't need to get it, get it just perfect every time. Uh, Joy writes, I will listen for that voice I have inside me before I work on my book today. That's awesome, Joy. That's a, a very powerful way to start um, a session in which we're practicing or moving towards our passions. That's beautiful. 
Jackie writes, I often hear that fear is not from God, and then the person shuts it out totally. I appreciate what you are saying about holding space for it, and then shifting to a still, quiet inner guidance that reflects who we truly are, holds guidance from a higher power, which helps us sort through our decisions. Yeah, like, Jackie, thank you for that, because I do think, um, particularly in some some religious contexts, fear has been sort of given a bad rap. Um, and one of the ways I approach it when speaking in those religious contexts is say, um, you know, it was given to you <laughs> for a purpose. Um, you need your fear. Um, and so in a way, there's a holiness to the emotion. Um, and that actually this idea that when I have faith, I'll quit being afraid is actually um, a complete falsehood. Um, and that when you live by faith, it takes you into new, more challenging terrain every day which causes you to become afraid again. I often suggest to people that if they're, if this voice of fear keeps coming up as they're entering new territory, it means it's ex they're going exactly where they need to be, <laughs> that their faith is powerful and strong and brave. Um, and so, uh, and you know, I, I think of like, I think of the scripture verse, Jesus, you know, the Bible say, uh, he didn't say, don't, don't have any worries. He said, today has enough worries of its own. <laughs> don't worry about tomorrow. So he too even seemed okay with it. So yes, um, our fear has a place. We don't want to exclude it completely, but we do want to be wise about how we relate to it. Brenda writes, I see a lot of good, kind, and passionate people around me, and I'm very thankful for that encouragement. Brenda, you're sort of echoing this theme that the, that reality is more inspiring than we are led to believe. Um, and I think we need to be reminding each other of that because... Um, because because the marketing industry is probably mostly not going to. Um, and when they do market inspiration, they market in a way that makes you feel bad that you can't feel that inspired. And so you have to go out and buy their product to, to, to be inspired like that. And then it fails and you have to go out and buy more. Ugh. Well, let's just look at what's around us, the reality that's around us, and be inspired by the ordinary um, truth of everyday life. Okay, everybody, thanks again for another helpful discussion. I feel like today, as I think back on this discussion, um, the, the wisdom you added to this discussion in just teasing out all the nuance of listening to our fear, um, it reinforces for me again the decision I made 14 months ago to do a podcast that involves all of you. <laughs> um, so this, this, this conversation would be so incomplete if it was just me sharing my ideas. So grateful for everything that you added. Next week, we're going to talk about what to do, not just when our fear tells us we should avoid failing, but what to do when we actually fail. It'll be week 50 of the year of listening, loving, and living, which is entitled The Courage to Fail. Until then, remember, you are lovable. Thanks again for joining us on the Lovable Podcast. Remember, this companion book can stand on its own, but it stands a little taller and a little stronger on the shoulders of Lovable. So if you have not picked up a copy of Lovable yet, it is available wherever books are sold, and you can get it in paperback, digital, or audio format. If you'd like to simply download a sample of Lovable, you can go to my website, drkellyflanagan.com. That's drkellyflanagan.com. In the right sidebar, sign up to receive my blog post by email, and you will immediately receive a free sample of Lovable and a free copy of my ebook, The Marriage Manifesto. The music for the Lovable podcast is courtesy of Ellie Holcomb and is entitled Wonderfully Made from her album Red Sea Road. Until next week, friends, remember, you are lovable. Yeah.